you to, to open your Bibles if you're not there. Matthew 1, Joshua 1. Bear with me this morning, I got the sniffles. Um, we're continuing on in this mini-series that we started last week. We looked at Mary Magdalene and, and what we could learn from her life story and how she encountered Christ and, and the devotion that she showed to him. And, and today we're going to be looking at another lady in Scripture kind of prefacing and setting up for Mother's Day next week. And so I have a question for you by a show of hands is there anyone in here in, um, in your life who really likes surprises? Just give me a show of hands. Someone in your life who likes surprises. Like, it can't just be a birthday party. It has to be a surprise birthday party. And you know anybody like that? Like, it can't just be an anniversary party. It's got to be, like, a surprise anniversary party. Like, I, I know somebody just like that and she's not up here today and I told her that I was going to kind of poke at her a little bit and it's my wife my wife loves surprises she she's downstairs uh serving with the little blessings this morning and um real quick I just want to tell you guys um I am so grateful and thankful for my wife uh she has been a godsend. Um, for the 16, almost 17 years that we have been together. Uh, we, we will be celebrating 14, 14 years of marriage this October. And uh, she has just been probably not only the, the most honest person, the most trustworthy person, but uh, the one person, like I could not do ministry um, and life without my wife. And so um, if you've not ever had an opportunity to connect with my wife, I would encourage you to do so. She has a, a wonderful, wonderful story, an amazing personality, but she, um, she's something very, very special to me. I just felt like I needed to share that this morning. You know, my, my wife is that one person. She, she wants the surprise party. She wants the surprise gift. She loves when you go through all of the work of putting something together. And to, to be 100% honest with you, I find it quite irritating. Uh, like, thank you. Yes, there's someone else. I find it quite irritating. Like, right? It, it gets old. It gets old, like, putting on the party hats and trying to hide. Like, I can't get down behind the sofa anymore because I wouldn't be able to get back up. But, like, getting behind the sofa or hiding behind a wall and having all the lights shut off, right? And then you have to time it just right. And the person has to open the door. And you hope that it's not the wrong person. And then you waste the surprise, right? Like, that irritates me. All of the steps in the process irritate me getting ready, right? But I, I, I know that my wife loves the surprises that have come in our life. The surprise parties. And I, I admit um, I, I will admit that as much as it irritates me, I actually love when they are surprised. Like they didn't guess the present. They didn't guess the party, right? Anybody else with me? Like you love when you plan something out and it actually goes as planned, right? Or, or when somebody surprises you, right? Don't you love that? Like you didn't think or expect you were going to get something and then it came to you and you're like, oh, I wanted this for so long. Anybody else in that boat? I remember a time when I was a, a child, uh, probably 
my freshman year of high school. And I woke up one Christmas morning, and it was still really dark outside. And I remember what, we lived in a, a huge farmhouse, and um, the stairs were over top of our parents' bedroom. And so every time we moved on those wooden stairs, they would creak, and we would get in trouble. Because, you know, we woke somebody up, or we got up too early, especially on Christmas. Our parents were like, don't get out of bed and wake everybody up by like barreling down the stairs. So this Christmas morning, I remember waking up and I snuck as, as quietly as possible down those stairs. And I remember getting to our living room and I saw a present that had my name on it. And it was wrapped in such a, a unique way that I knew, that I knew, that I knew it was a brand new electric guitar. Brand, I was a freshman in high school. I didn't know where my mom and dad had kept that present leading up to Christmas Day. But when I opened it, even though it was in the same shape, wrapped, I was as much surprised when I opened that guitar and I was able to plug it in and blow my sister's ears out by cranking that thing all I was so surprised by that one specific present. I didn't know how they could have afforded to get it because my parents had told me we can't afford to get the one that you wanted because it was super expensive. But they got me that specific electric guitar. That electric guitar. And I thought to myself, for me, that was one of the greatest Christmas surprises that I ever had in my entire life. Now, let me ask you a question. Does God ever surprise people? Does God ever surprise people? In fact, maybe we could say it this way. Does God like surprises? Does God like surprises? Like, if, let me give you an example of maybe you're on the fence. You're like, is this a trick question? Is pastor trying to throw us off here? Let, let me put it this way. Think about when you're reading the Bible, is every page that you turn to, is the very first thought that you have when you read Scripture, well, that's what I would have expected of God. I knew he was going to do that. Anybody? Is that your thought? Listen, don't incriminate yourself. I was just joking. Don't raise your hand. What about the way that God chooses to work in people's lives? Is it always I expected God to do this exactly in this way? Or is it, man, I didn't know how God was going to come through, but he did. Anybody ever find yourself there? You had no clue what was going to happen next. And then you're like, oh, God came through. God came through. I think we could make the case biblically that God delights in revealing aspects of his character that we would have never predicted or we would have never expected in our situations or our circumstances. That God actually delights in surprising people. And oftentimes, there are significant lessons that we are able to learn by studying out those surprises in Scripture. Now, God, who delights in surprising his people, did so really practically at every turn. Of the Bible. If you really think about it, if you really study it out, all the way through the process of his son becoming uh, from God to uh, born in human form, it even occurred a surprise, even occurred in something as dry and something as normal and predictable as a genealogy. A genealogy. Now, you may be saying, Pastor, what are you talking about? With that in mind, I want you to look at Matthew chapter 1. 
Matthew chapter 1. This week, we're going to be looking at finding grace in Scripture. Finding grace. And while this is a principle that you see all throughout Scripture, it's found specifically in the story that we're going to look at today. And in Matthew chapter 1, we're going to see it first before we jump to the Old Testament. Now, Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy or the birth line of Jesus Christ. Now, as is true with any ancient Uh, any ancient genealogy, this is not a complete family tree. I need you to understand this. This is not a complete family tree, so to speak. So there are selected people from selected generations, and because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, he's proclaiming Christ as the king. He's saying this is the promised Messiah. So he traces Jesus' lineage back to David and eventually back uh, to Father Abraham. Now, as I said, these are selected generations. So you would expect highlighted big name players in the Old Testament, to be in this genealogy, to be listed, right? But then you would also expect that there are probably some ancestors that were tainted. They were not the most beautiful people. And you would expect, because of the way genealogies were written, you would expect them not to be there. Their names in Jesus' day would not have been listed if they had skeletons in the family closet, They would not have been there. Now, these typically don't make them into royal genealogies, but that's not what Matthew gives us at all. So yes, Jesus is a king. Apparently, he's an extremely unique one. I mean, his his genealogy uh, is, is crazy to me because it contains the name of five women. Five different women. And that, in and of itself, was not normal in their culture. Tamar along with the sons Perez and, and, and Zerah. And without going into all the details of that life story, that was about as scandalous as it got in the Old Testament. And the lesson in that story was that God has grace for the oppressed. If you go back and you study out Tamar's life. You know, Tamar was ostracized by her father-in-law Judah, and God mentioned her in the line of Christ anyways. Now, I want us to to study out the next person that we see here, the next woman. So let's just start in verse number one. And it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, try to put yourself in the shoes of a Jewish individual that Matthew is trying to explain to us the beauty of Jesus Christ. So the, the genealogy, look at verse number two. And Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Like, man, Matthew, did you have to mention that specific couple? Tamar, did you have to listen or list her name? Now, we go on to see that it says that that um, Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, in verse number four, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nishan, and Nishan, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now, I want us to stop right there. Now, if you're new to studying the Bible, or, or you don't recognize the name of Rahab, you may be asking, Pastor, who is Rahab? Who is Rahab from the Old Testament? Well, listen, Rahab was a prostitute. She was a harlot. That was her job. And what we're talking this morning about God, how God has grace for the sinner. 
Not the kind of grace that says you can come to Christ and then sit in the very back because that's the only place that you'll ever have. I'm talking about a grace that says you can come to Christ by faith and you might make it into the line of Christ. You might make it into the line. That's the grace that we see in Scripture. Now, I want us to go back to the Old Testament and see what happened. How did Rahab become a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ? Now, jump with me to Joshua chapter 1. Jump with me to Joshua chapter 1, Old Testament. Grace, grace for the sinner. Grace for the sinner. Joshua chapter 1 begins in verse number 1. Now before we begin to read, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, you're going to have to work very hard contextually with me here. I'm going to share a lot of history and I'm going to throw a lot of things your way to help us to fully understand um, different things this morning. So if you would start in verse number 1. Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord... The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Now I want us to stop right there. I want to do a little bit of history to help us understand what's going on here. These first two verses that I read in Joshua chapter 1, if nothing else in those two verses, there was a name that you probably recognized. It was the name of Moses. You know who that guy is, right? You got, please nod, I hope, right? You guys know who Moses is in the Bible? Yeah, all right. So Moses was a name you probably recognized. Most people do, right? Charlton Heston. Ten, you guys never saw the Ten Commandments? What? Like, Charlton Heston leads the people out of Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. God gives him the Ten, you guys never saw the Ten Commandments? That's like a great movie, Man, go home and watch it. It's only like three and a half hours long. <laughs> all of Moses' life, all of those things, the exodus, the, the parting of the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments, those things happened 38 years prior to these two verses. 38 years now, historically, if we read verse by verse through the Old Testament, there's a question that comes up. And for, for you Bible scholars in here, did Moses ever make it into the promised land? No, the answer is no. But why? Why did he not make it into the, the promised land? Well, because of the sin of unbelief. Specifically, the unbelief of the ten spies. Do you guys remember that story? Where Moses sends out twelve spies into the land and they were supposed to bring back a report. And of those twelve, ten came back with a bad report, but two came back with a good report. Do you guys remember who those two people were? Joshua and Caleb. Why do you remember their names? Well, because they were men of faith. They were men of faith. They followed God. Now, if you study out those two men, you realize in Scripture that they were the ones that are like, let's saddle up the horses. Let's go. Let's charge the land. Let's go and do this. And so Caleb and Joshua, 38 years before we get to Joshua chapter 1, before we read this very section, they say, go up. 
Let's take possession of this very land that God has said he's going to give to us. We will surely overcome those who inhabit it. But these 10 other spies, these 10 other spies are sent out and they looked at the same facts and they came back and said, we're not going up against them. We can't. They are too strong for us. And the word that they use, strong, is very unique. And as I was studying through the book of Numbers, I began to ask these questions. These men are too strong. We cannot defeat them, is what the ten spies said. And I thought to myself, strong? You just saw God orchestrate the plagues in Egypt. And you're saying that these men are stronger than God? You just saw God part the Red Sea, but they're stronger than God. You saw God inscribe on stone the Ten Commandments in Moses' face was glowing from being in his presence. And these men are stronger than God. Listen to what these men said, these ten spies They said, and so they gave out the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out. And they said, the land that devour is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people who we saw in it are men of great size. They're giants. And they went on to say that there are those we saw who are Nephilims, the son of Anak, the giants. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. They were saying we were puny. There's no way for us to inhabit this land. And now the people who heard that report, you've got these two guys over here, Joshua and Caleb. And they're saying, we have to trust God. We have to trust God. And then you've got these 10 guys over here who are wimping it out big time in the Old Testament. And they're like, no, if we go, Israel will be destroyed. And they did not believe God. You know, you come in the book of Numbers to what I, I see is probably some of the saddest verses in the first five chapters of the Bible. And it says that the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and wept all night long because of fear. And I thought to myself, man, seriously, how? How could you be afraid? How could you be, how could you not believe God? But then it goes on to say that all of the sons of Israel grumbled at Moses and Aaron. They came to this place where they're not going to trust God, so let us just fuss at the leaders. Let us just cause problems with the leaders because we're not going to trust God. And the whole congregation said it would have been better if we died in Egypt, just like they did in Exodus. And, and that's a great plan, right? Well, we should just go back and die in Egypt. Let's not inherit the promised land. Like, why why is God bringing us to a land where we're probably going to die in the wilderness before we even get there? And the unbelief just continues to run deeper and deeper and deeper into the lives of the Israelites. And I can't help but think, I can't help but think that there are always going to be consequences for our unbelief. There will always be consequences. In the Bible, those who had unbelief in God, every adult, the Bible said, over the age of 20 years, 
who made the choice to follow the ten spies was killed in the wilderness before they even got to the promise. They all died. Millions of people died because of unbelief. They weren't allowed to enter the promised land. They, they weren't allowed to see it. For 38 years, the children of Israel were on an extended funeral march because of unbelief. Moses dies, and there are two faithful spies who take the lead. Caleb or Joshua. And as we saw in the first two verses here of Joshua chapter 1, Joshua was chosen to lead the people of Israel. Now look with me at verse number 3. So now you've got the history leading up to this point. Verse number 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I will give to you just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. And no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Now, is it fair here to say that God is making some very clear and specific promises to Joshua? Very, very clear. Now I want us to look at the next few verses and see if there are any repetitive themes that are spoken about here. So look with me at verse number 6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, and you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now, I want you to read verse number 9 with me. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? There's that same phrase, yet again. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Do you think God wants Joshua to be strong and courageous? I mean, he says it multiple times. Do you think he wants Joshua to follow his word? Yes. Yes. So look what happens. Look what happens as, as Joshua begins to instill these values into the Israelites. Look at verse number 10. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people to pass through the midst of the camp and command them to prepare their provisions for in three days we are to pass over the Jordan to go and take possession of the land and the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the words that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives and your little ones and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave to you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and they shall help them. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to, has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. And they shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it. And possess it. And the land that Moses the servant of God gave you beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise. Listen to 16. And they answered Joshua. 
all that you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you, and he, as he was with Moses. Now, whoever rebels, don't miss this, whoever rebels against your commandments and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So the Israelites are finally back on track. They're back on track. They're following the Lord. They're listening to the commands of Joshua who received those commands from Moses who received those commands from God. The Israelites are ready to go and possess the land. Now look with me at chapter number two. Look what happens. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And I want to stop. As I was reading through this passage of scripture, I thought to myself, not the spy thing again. Seriously? Like, we already did the spy thing, and that was a bad movie. Like, it was terrible. Why are we doing this all over again? Now, I want us to look and read what happens next, because remember, the people of Matthew's day, the people who would have read Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus would have had all of this background to refer to when they heard Rahab's name. They received the shocking news that she was in the lineage of Christ. But here's what I want to ask you to do as we begin to read these next couple of verses. I want you to do something with it. Look up here at me for just a moment. I want you to think about all of this from the perspective of Rahab. I want you to try. I want you to try to put yourself into Rahab's shoes. Then I want you to try and put yourself into the spies' shoes. What would the spies be thinking about? And then lastly, I want you to think about it from the perspective of Joshua. We're going to look at all three of these, these sets of people in the next few minutes that we have here. Now I want us to read in verse number 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hid them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. Let's stop right there. In other words, Rahab chose to believe in in doing what was right in the eyes of God. That's exactly what we're beginning to see here. Now look what happens in verse number 7. And so the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now before the men lay down, she came up on the roof and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you. And when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, who you devastated or devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. 
and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, listen to this, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save them and deliver our lives from death. Sorry, that you will save alive my father and mother and brother and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life from yours even to death. Even you do not tell this business of ours. Then when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built in the city wall so that she lived in the wall. Let's stop right there. Are you guys picturing this with me? I know it's a lot that we're reading and I know this isn't our normal, normal type of reading on a Sunday, but are you picturing this? Are you seeing everything that's going on? You've got a harlot. You have a prostitute that is letting these spies down by a rope through the window of her house because it was built into the city wall and she was living there. And look at what she says to them in verse number 16. She says, she says to them, go into the hills or the pursuer will encounter you and hide there for three days until the pursuers have returned. And then after you may go your way. And the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brother, and all your father's household. And then if anyone goes out of your doors of your house into the streets, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is in this house, the blood shall be on your or our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that we have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And they departed and went into the hills and they remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. And the two men returned and they came from the hills and they passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hand. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Man. There's a beautiful picture here in these two chapters. And yes, I know it's a lot of verses, but that's okay. That's okay because the context that Matthew's readers would have had in chapter 1 of Matthew would have been everything that we just read. They knew why Rahab was in the line of Christ. Now it's time that we look at these events and see three surprises here in Scripture. The first is Rahab's surprise. Rahab's surprise. You know, there, there is something about Rahab's surprise, something about, uh, about this picture of Rahab that speaks clearly to us something for right now here in this day. And it's this, that there is a plan and a program and a place of God for you and for myself. For the sinner, there's a place for you with God. You know, I want to ask you for the next few moments to look at how these events would have affected Rahab. 
I mean, the people in the city had already heard of God, and they had decided what they were going to do with that information. And there was no question, though, what Rahab did. She heard about the Lord, and she responded in the right way. You saw it in the text. She believed. She believed in God. Her testimony was crystal clear in Scripture. And that did not leave her anywhere else except for in front of and encountering the true God. I mean, her family, her friends, her household was about to be conquered. She was a prostitute, but they heard about the Red Sea. They heard about the Ten Commandments. They heard about the plagues. They heard about the holiness of God. So you're in that position just ready to be conquered and all of a sudden you hear a knock at your door and who is it that's there but two Jewish spies. Two Israelites. And I thought to myself, surprise, surprise, surprise. Do you think God might be trying to make a point then just as much as he's trying to make a point right now in Scripture? For us today? Because I, I believe here in Scripture, we, we see a clear picture that nobody is outside of the reach of God's redemption. Amen, Amen church? Nobody is outside of the reach of God's redemption. I, I want to say, say this. The, the readers of Matthew would have really needed to hear that very thing. That no one is outside of the redemption of God. By the time that Jesus came into the world, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, had come up with all kinds of laws intended to elevate their own self-righteousness and push them further and further away from people. People who didn't measure up. I mean, that's why many of Jesus' most fierce discussions involved the religious leaders of that day. Think about Matthew chapter 21. Jesus was talking to the religious leaders and he said to them that the tax collectors and prostitutes will inherit the kingdom of heaven before you. Yes, Jesus said that the prostitute and the tax, the two lowest people on the totem pole, the two people that were thought of as the worst human beings outside of those who were diseased or mentally ill. And he said they will inherit the kingdom of heaven before the religious leaders. Why? Well, because Christ's kingdom, Christ's kingdom is not about perfect people earning their way to heaven. Christ's kingdom shows us the surprise that is the gospel, the gospel itself. You know, we, we would have to assume that we've earned our way into heaven. That's what the Pharisees were doing. We, we assume we earned. We did all the right things. We prayed. We gave. We know the law. We live by the law. Check. I'm done. Check. I'm done. We, we have to assume that we've earned it. We have to assume that we've had to work for our salvation. We have to assume that the whole lot of people could have never attained it. And maybe even for a moment in our quietest moments at home, we would have said that we're probably not going to make the cut because of how we truly live our lives. But then there's Rahab. Then there's Rahab in Scripture showing that there's a place for everybody. There's a place for everybody. You know, the, the message 
comes through in so many aspects. And please, please don't rag on me for this because I know that it is only May 1st. But so many of the aspects of, of Rahab's story and what we learn from it come through in the Christmas story. When we look at that the birth of Jesus Christ, who did the angels come and make the announcement to of Christ's birth? But the shepherds, the lowly laborers in that day. Was, was Jesus born in, in the Hyatt, you know, in the nicest city in town? No, he was born in little town of Bethlehem in a manger, in a stall, in a dirty place that would have been cut out in the side of a mountain. He, he was showing that he made a way for ordinary people. For lost people. For broken people. The message to the Rahab, to our modern day Rahab. You know, we, we undoubtedly have, statistically speaking, we undoubtedly have at least one person here in our service today who has probably concluded in their heart that there's no hope for me. Statistically speaking, there's, there's at least one person who's had the thought, somebody drug me to church today, or I stumbled here by myself today, but my past is too checkered. There's no way that God can truly forgive me. But I want to tell you something today. Probably something that no one's ever said to you before. Take a lesson from the genealogy of Jesus. Take a lesson from the genealogy. When was the last time somebody said that to you? Take a lesson from the genealogy of Jesus. If there is a place for Rahab, there is a place for you and I. Amen, church? If there is a place for Rahab, there is a place for you and I. And you might say, well, what do I need to do? And the answer is exactly what Rahab did in Scripture. She made a decision of faith. That's exactly what Rahab did. She made a decision of faith. You know, one of the key verses here that's often overlooked in this passage is when Rahab said, For the Lord your God, he is God of heaven above and on earth below. It's a perfect picture of Rahab expressing, He's my Savior. He's rescued me. He's not just my creator anymore. I have a relationship with him. Now you might say, well, what about the lies that she told. She, she lied. She lied in scripture. And they recorded it. So what about the lies? Well I hate to burst your bubble. But some people argue about those lies incessantly. And they miss the point of the text. And I believe that the writer of Hebrews all the way in the New Testament gave us the point of the text when he said, By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient. Why? Because Hebrews says that she welcomed the spies in peace. She welcomed them in peace. So I just want to ask you a question this morning. 
Are you sure there has been a definite time in your life where you've done individually what Rahab did individually? Where you acknowledge your sin and you place your faith and trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. And if you've never done that, maybe you didn't even know the gospel was that kind of surprise for you. Maybe you didn't realize. Maybe you're hearing that aspect of it for the first time. That there is a free gift of grace that comes only through Jesus Christ. Now I want to invite you to acknowledge that in this place. I invite you to acknowledge your need for the gospel. And if you're one of, those, one of those people, it doesn't matter how many skeletons you have in your closet. Where sin abounds, grace abounds that much more. Amen, church? If there was enough grace from God for Rahab, then there's enough grace for you and for me to invite Christ into our lives. To be the kind of God that we, that we truly are seeking. The kind of God that we want to live for. The kind of God that we want to serve. But then the question might be posed. If I come to Christ, can I still be a prostitute? Now that may come across kind of funny to some of you, but it's a legitimate question. I've had conversation with person after person after person in my years of ministry that have come away from alcohol and drugs and pornography and a homosexual lifestyle, and they've asked those very questions. If I come to Christ, can I still, can I still be this? Can I still, can I still do these things? Can I still fill in the blank for whatever it is for you? And the answer is no. No, you can't. You can't. And then the question is always, well, how do you see that from the text? How do you know that you can't? Well, it's interesting that the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1 goes on to tell us that Rahab became somebody's wife. She gave birth to a child. His name was what, church? Boaz. The one who married Ruth. And for those of you who remember, last fall we did this extensive series on the book of Ruth. And we looked at his life and how he was an example of Jesus Christ. She became somebody's wife. And not just somebody, she became Salmon's wife who was a Jew. She went from being a Gentile prostitute to a Jewish man's wife. She gave birth to Boaz who married Ruth and all of the lineage passed all the way down to Jesus himself. The Bible does not tell us their entire story, but we know that she no longer lived that life because of what God had done in hers. And the good news is that God meets you exactly where you are. You don't have to clean up to come to God. The better news is, though, and don't miss this because so many people miss this. The good news is that you don't have to clean up, that he'll take you right where you are. But the better news is that he doesn't leave you there. The better news is he does not leave you there. Now, what about the message to those called to receive the repentant Rahab? What about that? Because I really believe that this is not just about the Rahab. 
I really believe that it's not just about the one living in sin. Because there are many Christians in many churches who would be very uncomfortable with what I'm about to tell you. I really honestly believe from Scripture that God wants for us to be havens of grace. I really honestly believe that we should be havens of grace who are ready to welcome anyone who seeks to become a follower of Jesus Christ with open arms regardless of the baggage that they carry. You know, I... I've had conversations over the last year, a little bit over that, with various people here in the church, and um, they, you know, they they've asked, they've asked, why do I rag so hard um, on sinfulness? Like, why, why, why do I throw it out there and, and, and constantly am, and putting it out there about not living these certain lifestyles and doing these certain things and, and partaking in these certain things? And I just want to throw this out there to you, church. I believe that the most loving thing that I can do as your pastor is to speak truth to you. That's the most loving thing that I can do is to speak truth to you. That's the most loving thing that you as a Christian can do for your spouse and for your kid and for your brother and your sister and your mom and your dad and your friend and your coworker to speak truth. To speak truth. But I will tell you right now that if somebody walked through the back doors back there and they were a drug addict or an alcoholic or a homosexual, and they came here because they were seeking fulfillment through Christ, I would be the first person to walk down that aisle and embrace that person. It doesn't matter where they came from. Yes, I will stand on this platform and I will preach the truth to you and I will live by that truth because as believers we are to do that. I don't want somebody to go to hell because of a lifestyle choice. I have the hope inside of me of something that can fulfill even your deepest and darkest needs in you. It doesn't matter where you turn, you're never going to find fulfillment in anything outside of Christ himself. And guess what, church? We have that. We have that hope inside of us. And yet most oftentimes someone walks in and we're quick to shun them. We're quick to say, I'm, I would never do that. I would never live that way. Oh, I can tell that that person lives that certain lifestyle. Yes, yes, speak truth. Yes, yes, embrace the individual. Church, we're to be havens of grace. I think about all of the people that Christ encountered in his ministry, he sat with the sinners. The outcasts, the lepers, the prostitutes. But he didn't sit with them to be inclusive. He sat with them because he wanted them to change. He wanted them to be different. And I wonder how many Rahabs we have in our circles of influence. 
Rahabs that we've brushed off because they think differently than we do. Listen, guilty is charged right here. I'm a pastor and I spend most of my time with Christians. And I can become very, very short-sighted at times. I'm on a mission and I become laser-focused. And so listen, I'm, I'm just as guilty. I'm just as guilty. I have a sibling who lives a homosexual lifestyle. Many of you probably didn't know that. She has for years. I love her to pieces. And I pray constantly for her. We grew up in the same household. Under the same roof. We went to the same church. We went to the same youth group. We were taught the same things. And oftentimes, I, I overlook that she's a Rahab in my own life. Because I feel like I can't, I can't say it anymore. I can't speak it out anymore because I've done it until I've been blue in the face and she still doesn't get it. And I find it a struggle to be, to be grace-filled all the time. Anybody else ever resonate in their life with that? There are five children in my family. And of the five of us, there are only two that are faithful to serving the Lord. There are people within our own families that are lost, broken, hurting, that need hope. There are Rahabs within our, our grasp, our reach. There's a place there's a place for everybody. Church, I wonder what, what we can do different so that people understand that. Someone once told me that you can't you can't preach the gospel with your life. You can exemplify the gospel with your life, but you can only preach the gospel with your mouth. And I wonder if our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our communities would see a, a difference in our, in our people here. If we, if we truly placed our entire lives into God's hands the way that Joshua did, the way that Caleb did, the way that the children of the children of Israel did, those who inherited the promised land. I wonder if, if more Rahabs would come. I wonder if more people would, would be impacted by, 
truth and live changed lives. Not because I, I want to have the biggest church here in Ionia, because I, I, don't, I don't need that. My, my prayer for this church since the day I set foot as the pastor is just to have a church of faithful people. I don't care the number. I just want a church of faithful people, faithful to the gospel, faithful to God. So what, what can we do different, church? Because there are lost and hurting people right here, right on the street, right out here. And I wonder if maybe at times we've become blind to the Rahabs. I wonder at times our, what my church used to say when I was a kid, we've become too pharisaical. Just throwing it out there. I'm not asking for you to raise your hand and, and reply or respond. It's just what can you do different? I'm not even going to finish my sermon because we're already, we're already past. I, I wonder, just wonder. Let's pray. God, God, we come to you in this place and And I, I, at this moment, God, I feel like I don't have the words to even speak what is going on in my heart. And I thank God that the Holy Spirit intercedes when we don't know what to say. But God, there are lost there are lost people right here in our community. There are lost people in our neighborhoods, in our, our workplaces, God. And, and I ask for us to be havens of grace. I ask for submissive lives here in our, our church people. So that when we walk outside of, of this building on Sundays and Wednesdays, God, that we are, are seen not just as, as the, the strange people who go to church, but as the people who, who things are happening different in our lives because you're a part of it. So Lord, I, I, don't, I don't know where every single individual person is here in this church and in their relationship with you, but God, you do. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to move in those ways, to encourage those who need to be encouraged, to spur on those who need to be spurred on, to push and convict those who need to be pushed and convicted. Work in only ways that you can. And God, in that, I pray for faithful steps of obedience from us as a church body, as individuals. That we would, we would seek you. That we would be connected to you. 
because you're the one who gives life and strength and joy and peace and patience and gentleness, God. Self-control. And so I ask, I ask now, Lord, that we would leave this place with much to think on. That we would leave this place with, with a challenge, but also be encouraged that there is a place for us. There's a place for us in your family as one of your children. And because of that, we're challenged and, and, and charged and commanded to go and live godly lives and to set examples and to speak truth so that other people know of the hope that we have inside of us. So God, we, we praise, praise your precious name this morning and we thank you um, for who you are and for your faithfulness to us. And I just ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Before you...